Well, good evening, everyone. I think we scared away a few people, letting them know what uh, what we're teaching on tonight. We are in the book, the Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, if you'd like to call it that. Uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Richard is up, and he can get you a Bible. Does this sound a little bit loud to you guys? Maybe there's a little bit of a ringing too. Maybe just turn it down just a little bit, Billy. Testing, one, two, three, is that all right? Testing, okay. Sounded fine before? Don't mind me, I'm just a pastor, I don't know these things. Just had had to ask the custodian. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to uh, be able to be in your word and know that every time we open your word, Lord, no matter where we're at in your word, you have something to say to us from your word. We praise you, Lord, for that. We pray that you'd bless our time together, Lord. We want to continue to lift up our kids on their mission trip to Mexico. Thank you, Lord, for giving them just great grace, getting in and out of the country, Lord, and for just the work that you're doing with them while they're gone. Uh, Just continue to pray your blessing for them, your protection on them, God. And uh, just thank you, Lord, ahead of time for the stories we're going to be able to hear of you moving and working in these kids' lives. Bless our time together, Lord, we pray. Just speak to our hearts. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've shared this before. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, how many of us here tonight believe that verse is absolutely true? All of us, right? Okay. All Scripture. Okay, that, that's the key. All Scripture is given by God and is profitable. All is a key word. Now, there are, are challenging books to teach in God's Word. I mean, for example, the book of Romans. That can be difficult with all its deep theological truths and or the book of Hebrews with the difficult passages of salvation on it or even Leviticus with all its feasts and festivals. But compared to the Song of Solomon, those books are walking the park. (laughs) Why? Well, because the Song of Solomon is like reading someone else's love letters to each other. You feel like you're intruding in on their life's. It speaks of this physical intimacy between Solomon and his first wife as one true love known as the Shulamite. There's no mention of God in the entire book, which is very interesting for a book of the Bible. There's no real theology in the book. There's no plan of salvation. In fact, some of the the intimacy in the book is so graphic that the Jewish rabbis said that a Jewish male was not even allowed to read this book until they reached the age of 30 years old. The uh, Jewish rabbi saw it as an illustration of God's love for the nation of Israel. The early church fathers followed that example and associated with, with Christ's love for his church. And now, although I do believe that, I do think the book provides for some illustrations concerning Christ and his church, I don't think that's the original intent at all. Mainly because there are too many things in the book that you really have to stretch your imagination to see it in that context. In fact, it's almost embarrassing in some places to make that connection. I think the book is exactly what it says it is in verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 
The book is a, both a literal and historical account of Solomon's relationship with his first wife as one true love, and this is their song. Now, you think that people would have enough of silly love songs. But look around me, I see it isn't so. Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs, and so did Solomon. And here's their song, and Solomon and the Shulamite girl. Now, who was she? Well, she's just a simple, hard-working girl that Solomon fell head over heels for. And it really is a beautiful picture of love and romance and intimacy God's way. Here is a book where God, the God who created intimacy, is seeking to show us what it's supposed to look like. That it's supposed to be this wonderful, enjoyable part of every godly marriage. Sadly, in our culture today, they are constantly pushing a warped view of romance and intimacy upon our young people. And that certainly has been Satan's strategy all throughout the years. Why? Well, because he knows, you know, that sex sells. It's used to sell everything. And because of that exploitation, we can start to think of the physical intimacy as something that is dirty and, well, you shouldn't talk about that, something we are embarrassed by. And yet, physical union and intimacy is a wonderful thing that God has created. I think we as a church should be leaders for the rest of the world on what intimacy and romance and sexuality is supposed to look like. Yet, sadly, over the years, church history has been anything but what it's supposed to to look like. Great men of faith, early church fathers who loved the Bible and loved God's word and loved Jesus that had a warped view of sexuality and intimacy. Tertullian and and Ambrose, two early church fathers, favored the extinction of the human race over continual sexual intimacy. Origen was so convinced of the evils of sexual intercourse and pleasure that he not only allegorized the Song of Solomon, but he had himself castrated. In a book, of, a book by Herbert B. Workman, he describes how a fair-faced woman haunted a monk named Benedict in his dreams to the point where he writes of Benedict, at last flinging away the skin which was his only dress, he flung himself naked into a thorn bush and rolled himself in this bed until he extinguished the lure of the senses. It's kind of intense. How about you take a cold shower, you know, but, but again, he's rolling around in a thorn bush. Augustine said sex between a husband and wife was okay, but if they enjoyed it or derived any form of pleasure from it, then that pleasure was sin. And that really led to the uh, concept promoted by Thomas Aquinas that said sex is only for the purpose of procreation, which is interesting when you look at the book of the Song of Solomon. It talks a lot about physical intimacy, but never once does it mention children or kids at all. Now, with that being said, Guys, you're not going to want to take this too literally in the sense that you start using some of Solomon's lines with your wife or your girlfriend. It's not very applicable for today. When Solomon says that her belly is like a round goblet or her belly is like a heap of wheat, guys, you probably don't want to say your wife's belly is like a heap of anything. Solomon will say her neck is like a tower of ivory, your eyes are like the fish pools of Hebrew, your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, That doesn't work either, especially if you're dating. So here's the point. There is some poetic beauty here where Solomon is comparing his his wife to these things in that day that were considered valuable and beautiful. Today it would be like, honey, you shine like the chrome of a Harley. You know, or, or, or your eyes are like sunshine on a cloudy day. Now, Solomon is the author. He was Israel's third king. He was the tenth son of David, but the second son between David and Bathsheba. First Kings chapter three, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, God, and said, and God said, ask what you want, I'll give it to you. Solomon responded by saying, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I might be discerned between good and evil. 
Who can discern such a great people of yours? God then responded and says, Because you've asked this thing, you have not asked for long life for yourself, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding and discern justice. He says, I'm going to do according to your words. I'm going to give it all to you. You're going to have an understanding heart so that there's no, not been anyone like you before you shall let anyone like arise after you. And according to 1 Kings 4.29, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like, excuse me, like the sand on the seashore. Second. So he's full of wisdom. He's a prolific writer, great ruler. Despite being a king, he was a builder, a general, a seaman. He developed shipping lanes for trade. But as we'll see, he's also a romantic as well, a poet. And again, a songwriter. In fact, according to 1 Kings 4.32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Now, this is the only one preserved, so this is his greatest hit. Again, verse 1 says, the song of songs which is Solomon. Now, I, I got a few goals for, the, for our studies. Number one, those who are in a good marriage, I hope these studies will renew a passion and appreciate for marriage and, and romance and it should be growing. Those struggling in their marriage bring healing and correction as you see God's design. Those that are single wanting to be married come to appreciate God's design for dating and intimacy. Hopefully clear some, some of the confusion about dating. Those single and content to be single have a better understanding of God's plan for relationships to help them counsel others in their singleness. And then number five, by pointing out some of the parallels in our relationship with Jesus, it will help us grow in our relationship with Him. So here we have... The, the words of Solomon is first true love. He says of him, look at verse 2. She says of him, rather, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She doesn't waste any time here in expressing that she enjoys when her husband shows her physical affection. In fact, I've shared this before on Sunday morning. It's a proven fact that a man who kisses his wife in the morning before he goes to work will live five years longer than those that don't have 50% fewer illnesses and make 20 to 30% more money than the man who doesn't kiss his wife. So, you know, when she says, for your love is better than wine, she's saying your love is better than anything this world has to offer. Verse 3, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is the ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Now, some think that that first part of verse 3 here is referring to some type of cologne that Solomon wore. You know, he didn't overdo it. Didn't put on too much Old Spice or, you know, high karate or, I don't know what it is, the old stuff from years ago, brute. You know, put some brute cologne, you know. But we can also apply this to, to guys, the importance of having just good, clean hygiene. Brush your teeth, comb your hair, put on a clean shirt for dinner, you know. But as you continue in verse 3, you see that she attaches the idea of his fragrance to his name. She says, your name is ointment poured forth. This speaks of his character. Speaks of his reputation. Because he's a, a man of good character. He's a good catch. Therefore, virgins love you. The single girls want to date you. You know, in high school, and you guys probably remember this as well, you know, you knew the guys or the, the girls that were, had the bad reputation. Oh man, he's got a bad reputation. Oh, she's, she's got a bad reputation. Solomon at this point in his life still had a good name, still had a good reputation. Proverbs 22 once says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. And I think, you know, for those that are single, ladies, you need to spend time, enough time with, with a man to find out what his real name is, what he's all about. Not the name that he tells you, but the name that he shows you. 
You want a man with a, with a good name, a man with a good reputation. See, a man with lots of money or possessions or good looks or a nice car, it's all superficial. It's what's on the inside that counts. And what matters is that, that godly character. So, she says in verse 4, draw me away. She's not, she's not afraid to be alone with him because he's got a good reputation. She can say, hey, let's go get coffee and not worry about what he's going to try. So she says, draw me away. Verse 4, she's thinking of her wedding night now. She says, we will run after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. You know, in a Jewish wedding, when uh, the groom comes for his bride and the bridesmaids along with the bride, they have oil in their lamp like the parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew 25. And they're waiting and they're waiting for that announcement for the, for the, for the bridegroom. The bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. And we see here, we'll be glad and rejoice in you. And you, this you could certainly say is a parallel to our relationship with Jesus. And Jesus, man, our, our bridegroom, he's coming back at any moment. We're to keep our lamps trimmed and burning, waiting for his return. And, and when he does return, we will be glad and rejoice in him. Now, beginning in verse 5, we begin to get an idea of how the Shulamite viewed herself. Look at verse 5. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tent of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, when the bride here says that she's dark, she's not referring to her race. She was a Jewish girl which many believe she was the area, from the area of Shunem, which is just south of Nazareth. Some think that she was more up from up in Lebanon. But the fact is, she's describing that she's got dark skin. And she's saying here that her family took care of one of the vineyards owned by Solomon, and they made her work out in the vineyard, thus the reason for her dark skin. It's like the tents of Kedar. The tents of Kedar were, were, were made of skin of the black sheep and black goats, so they were you know, dark, dark tents. Today we live in a culture where we have tanning booths and tanning beds and spray tans and, and long to have that, that perfect tan. But at that time, a tan signified that you worked hard in the field. And really, right away, we see that the Shulamite woman was, was kind of insecure about her appearance. She said, they made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. In other words, she hasn't been able to keep up in her appearance and she's really insecure about how she looks. You know, things really haven't changed in some 3,000 years. It's like if you go to pick up your wife you know, or, or your girlfriend out on a surprise date, she would say, oh, no, don't look at me. I haven't fixed my hair yet. I haven't put on my makeup. Very insecure about how she looks. Most women and even some men are insecure about their looks. Most women wish at least one part of their, their body was different. Oh, if I only had this. If only I looked like this. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And that's what we need to see here. Despite this woman's insecurity, she was still a woman of principle and a woman of conviction. Look at verse 7. She says, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Now the last line of that verse is the key to understanding what she's saying. It was the prostitutes that veiled themselves uh, by the flock. They, they would seek to position themselves in the places where the shepherds would come to let their flocks rest at noon, and then they would offer their, their services. 
Calvin, my son-in-law, just got back from Romania, and he was telling us that it's all over the place there in Romania. They just the, the prostitutes that come there, and you know, it's like they hang out at the truck stops hoping to make some money. Here she's saying, I want to spend some time with you, but I'm not going to hang out where the prostitutes hang out waiting for you. Tell me where you are, and I'll meet you there. She wants to spend time with him, but she's not going to chase him all over the countryside. In other words, despite her insecurity about her appearance, she will not do anything to get a man. She's not going to give sex in order to get love and hopefully gain some form of self-worth. Dennis Agajanian, big old country guitar player, he had a song years ago, and one of the lines in the song read, He gives love for pleasure, and she gives pleasure to be loved. I just thought how sad that is, but how true that is today. You know, the, 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 the guy, the, the man, you know, you know, oh yeah, I love you, I love you, let, let, let's, let's be intimate. And, and she does it because she wants to be loved, but it's really not about that. This woman says she's not going down that road. Too many women today, especially young women, are doing that. Now he replies, if you know where I'll be, he says, look at verse 8. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. He responds basically by saying, listen, if you come and visit me, it'll all be on the up and up. You can have a special place near the shepherd's tent right out in the open and everyone will know that you belong to me. I'll treat you with some special attention. Let me ask you married men here tonight. Does your wife feel like she gets special treatment from you in public, out in public? She should. Or does she feel like maybe you treat her like any other woman in the room, nothing special? Worship, I've seen some men treat other women better than their wives. Solomon is telling her, you have precedence in my life. You deserve special attention in my life. Then Solomon says, you're like this in verse 9. I've compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, I would not recommend you make this comparison with your wife. Honey, you remind me of one of my young female horses, my filly. It's probably not a good thing. But again, the context. Solomon valued horses a great deal. They were considered a prize to him. He's saying, you are more valuable to me than all the horses I could own. Now, here's the thing. You would only put stallions, uh, you know, you only use stallions to pull the chariots. And you would never put a filly among the stallions unless you, unless you put that filly out in front. Then all the stallions would run faster chasing after her. But if you put a filly mixed in with, with the, the stallions, they would become distracted and they'd be, be all fighting to get near her. So here's how Solomon is affirming this woman that he loves her. He's saying, your beauty is so awesome, it's distracting. It's hard to concentrate when I'm around you. He's distracted in a good way. Some of you ladies are going, why didn't he say so in the first place? Why do you have to use it about a horse? It goes on in verse 10. He says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters are fir. He says, oh, you are so pretty. And she says, oh, but you are so handsome. And, and, and she says, oh, yeah, but you're gorgeous. And, and he says, oh, but I love your eyes. Oh, but you are so pleasant. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> Why? Because, again, it's like you're reading someone else's love letters. I mean, if they're your own, 
It's no big deal, right? I mean, Lisa and I, we still have, I got a box of love letters that I wrote when we were, you know, 17 and 18 years old. But to read someone else's, you know, it's a little, little cheesy, and, you know, but, you know, and if you were to read mine, you'd be going, ew, you know. But they love each other. When she says here, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyard of Engedi, this is special. Engedi is out in the desert area around the Dead Sea. It's a hot, dry place. But in the midst of this hot, dry climate is this oasis called Engedi. And here's what, what she's saying. Her lover is like an oasis in the midst of a desert. I mean, think about how people wander through life roaming from one desert experience to the next. And life can be charged and parched, rather. Relationships can be parched. But when two people submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in their relationship, their relationship becomes an oasis in a desert. Is your relationship more like a parched desert or an oasis? She's saying that the relationship is like this it's an oasis. It's refreshing. You are an oasis to me. I feel refreshed, secure, and content when I'm with you. <coughs> then uh, she calls her husband pleasant in verse 16. Behold, you are handsome, my, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. And this is interesting. That word for pleasant is actually the same word used by David to describe Jonathan, his best friend. Basically, she's saying, Solomon, you're my best friend. And listen, married couples should be best friends. Even engaged couples should be at that point in the relationship where they are best friends. Then in verse 17, the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. Beams of cedar speak of, of strength. Rafters of fir speak of being covered and being protective. Solomon has covered her in affirmation. He's made her feel special and valuable. She's refreshed. She's rejuvenated by this relationship. She feels totally secure and protected and that she is with her best friend. Man, man, especially if that isn't how God has called us to love our wives, then, then I don't know what is. Ephesians 5.25 tells us, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How does Christ love us? He makes us feel special. We are refreshed and rejuvenated in our relationship with Him as we spend time with Him in His Word. Jesus is our best friend who sits closer than a brother, but who at the same time is our King and He protects us and helps us to live secure in His love for us. Now, how does that affect the way we live? Well, we begin to look differently at ourselves. I'm a child of God now. You know, He's my protector. He's my King. He's my Lord. And we see here how Solomon's love of his life responds to all this intention. She begins to feel differently about herself. She says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. I'm blessed above measure, she says. Verse 2, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Again, this is a love letter between Solomon and the love of his life, but you can't help, at least in that last verse there, think about our, our Savior, our King Jesus. We used to sing that song as kids if you've been around for a long time. The Lord is mine and I am His. His banner over me is love. Lord is mine. I mean, His banner over me is love. Then He brought me to the banqueting table. His banner over me is love. And the banner speaks of a military flag easily seen by those who march. And it just, you know, it just speaks of the Lord. And he brings us to that, that, that banqueting table. And he watches over us and protects us. And here is context. She's 
she's saying Solomon's love for her is clearly seen. I'm protected and loved. She says in verse 5, Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. This is great. You know, she, she kind of goes from saying, Don't look at me, I'm dark, to you can look at me all you want, and I'll look at you because I'm, I'm just lovesick. All that because he's covered her with his love and affirmation. Now verse 6. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. The picture here is out of embrace and caress and really a stirring in her heart for them being together intimately. Then she says in verse 7, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. See, Solomon and this Shulamite woman, as they look back over their courtship, are sharing their experiences with the daughters of Jerusalem. This is, the, again, the Song of Songs. And they sing this song. The daughters of Jerusalem are, are part of it. You read that over and over again. And, and they went, every now and then they give their two cents. But here, Solomon's love of his life, the Shulamite woman says to the young virgins, the daughters of Jerusalem in verse 7, Do not stir up nor awaken love until the appropriate time. Now, many believe what she is saying to the daughters of Jerusalem is the virgins is to keep yourself pure before marriage. Don't get yourself involved in situations that will awaken these God-given feelings before the appropriate time. Unmarried men and women are to avoid engaging in activities that create intense sexual arousal prior to marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31, Paul in quoting Moses said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's plan. That's God's design for the marriage relationship. So what's being said here is don't ignite those feelings before the time, because if you do, there's going to be problems. Now in our culture today, man, it's gone in the opposite direction. Premarital sex has become, according to the world today, the norm. Just think of the movies that are out there, even TV shows. They don't think twice about having premarital sex. Because that's, that's the norm, is you have to sex before marriage, and then if things work out and continue great, then you get married. Which is a total violation and affront against God and against His Word. We read here, Do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. We'll read it again in verse 5 of chapter 3. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then again in chapter 8, verse 4, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Identical statements. Why? Because in the midst of this beautiful portrayal, this love song, in the midst of this sexual passion, the woman says to the other young woman, stay pure until marriage. Do not stir up nor awaken love until it's time. Because sexual intimacy in any form is designed only for the marriage relationship. There's such joy and, and blessing that comes from those that have kept themselves pure until marriage. Not that, that God can't forgive you and you know if you have it, but there's just an excitement that comes from waiting for that wedding night, knowing that you've honored God and honored each other by waiting. Verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. So Solomon is now riding up to her place where she lives, maybe with her parents. There's a wall around the estate. He comes up riding on the horse, kind of looking inside to see if he could see her. Maybe he wants to take her out on a date, or maybe this is for their wedding day. He says he's riding a horse. You know, in our modern day, it might be he's pulled up in his Chevy, you know, Chevy truck. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice, and says in verse 10, My beloved spoke and said to me, 
Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth their green figs, and the vines with the tender gra- grapes give a good smell. So just come on out in a fresh air. Just take a whiff. It's so beautiful out. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. That sounds like he just wants to take her away and spend some time with her, go on a date, take a ride in the country. It's beautiful out. I mean, it doesn't say that it's spring, but when you're in love, it's always spring. It doesn't matter. Verse 14, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You know, doves, they hide in the clefts of the rock and it's hard to get them out once they're in there. And what I see this, I think this is speaking of, is there just a desire to be alone together. To get away from the crowd and spend that time together. Which I think when you're dating, that's a good thing. But you just don't want to overdo a good thing. Don't get away alone together too much. Especially don't get alone together at 11.30 at night in your apartment and then wonder why you're tempted. I don't know why I'm tempted so much and struggle in this area. Well, get yourself out of the area and you won't. Yes, it's good to draw close to one another and to learn about each other and to talk to each other, but not to the place where you become vulnerable to sexual temptation and sin. So here they're expressing their desire to be alone with each other in the secret places of the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Then in verse 15, this is interesting. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, the little foxes were just that, destructive little animals that would come in and and destroy the vineyards, and they would eat them up. They would wreck them. One commentator suggests that this seems that within their relationship, there were some problems that needed to be dealt with, and and she's saying to young Solomon, hey, you take the initiative. And let's work through these problems that we're having together. She says, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. There's a lot of little foxes that are spoiling vines today. There are wedges that come between relationships even today. Selfishness and pride and and jealousy and and, and, and the inability to express your true feelings to each other. Pride, you, you won't let your guard down and really admit your faults to each other. And they spoil the grapes. Here she says, honey, we got some issues we need to deal with. We have to resolve some of these things. And he says, oh, let's just take a walk. It's wonderful. It's all good. And she said, no, it's not all good. There's some little foxes that we have to talk about. Let's talk. And for a guy, you know, the last thing that we want to do is talk, you know. But, but you know, especially even after you're married. Man, we need to honor our wives. And we need to talk through those problems. We need to talk through those those difficulties, you know, and, and I mean, First Peter three seven, uh, you know, talks about honoring our wives so that our prayers aren't hindered. And so, talk things out, resolve conflicts God's way. Now she says, even though we have conflicts and the things we have to work out, she goes on in verse sixteen. But oh, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. Just beautiful, poetic description of how Jesus longs to be with him. Now, chapter 3. Chapter 3, many believe that it's a description of, of a, a dream that she's having at her home. You know, did you ever get 
have dreams at your house and maybe, you know, I know my wife and I have done this. I've done it. She's done it. You know, you have a dream, then you wake up and you're upset with each other. I think we all do. I like Tim Hawkins. He does a, a, a little comedy sketch where, where his wife gets mad at him for behaving wrong in her dreams. She says, Tim, I had a horrible dream last night about a grizzly bear chasing me through the woods and he was going to eat me and you did nothing. You did nothing. You just sat there and didn't do a thing. What was I doing? You were playing poker with a rabbit, he says. And that's just like you. You would do something like that, he says. Luckily, a giant unicorn showed up and saved me with his laser horn, but it wasn't by you. And talks about how, you know, she had this dream and, and she gets all mad at him. And I those dreams, you know, where, where I wake up and, you know, dreams where Lisa doesn't want to pay attention to me. She has nothing to do with me. I said, why were you mad at me? You know, I've had dreams when she was walking and, and, and she's, you know, like it's no big deal. And I'm going, you're walking, you're walking. So? <laughs> yeah, then I wake up and she goes, so? Okay. <laughs> you know, she has this dream. And, and in this dream, you know, she's seeking the one she loves and she can't find him. You know, when you're about to make a big decision, you can have some pretty weird dreams. Here she, she's scared she's going to lose Solomon. She has this dream. Look at verse 1 now. By, by, by night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. Just some insecurity she's having. So her dream, she says, I will rise now, I said, and go about the city and the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them. And when I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go until I brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I found him and we got together. It's so wonderful. I'm not going to lose you now, you know. She's, you're going to stay with me forever. She awakes from her dream and says in verse 5, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. There it is again, as in verse 7 of chapter 2. She knows that the intensity of her love for Solomon cannot yet be experienced until that actual wedding day. So she invites the daughters of Jerusalem to keep her accountable regarding sexual purity until her wedding day. So after this point, the escalated desire of the Shulamite for Solomon has been expressed in veiled and kind of delicate ways as compared to the explicit and open expressions that we're going to read about next week after the wedding. You know, when you talk about weddings, for the most part, you know, they, weddings seem to be a little bit awkward. All the people getting together, many people don't know each other and they have to all get along and be nice to each other. It can be awkward. Well, not only do we have an awkward wedding to look at at the rest of this chapter, but in the next chapter, next week, we're going to get a glimpse into their honeymoon night. Now, the reason that we wouldn't want to do that in real life, get a glimpse into someone's honeymoon, is not because what happens there is dirty or wrong. It's not, but it's because it's private. It's, it, it's intimate. It's not a place for, for guests or for observers. That's what makes the next chapter such an interesting portion of Scripture. God invites us into that private place. But we're not going to look at it tonight. We're just going to finish up this chapter tonight. Look at verse 6. Who is this coming out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders? Behold, it is Solomon's couch with sixty valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. What was the largest wedding party, wedding you've ever attended? Uh, you know, the wedding party, you know, you got all the, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen. I heard of a wedding where there was twelve bridesmen and the poor grooms are trying to recruit strangers to, to, you know, for groomsmen to be in his wedding. Hey, you want to come to be in my wedding? Solomon has 60 groomsmen, valiant men of the valiant of Israel. Verse 8 says, 
They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has a sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. So picture this. How about on your wedding day, you're here at the church, and we have 30 guys lined up on that side, 30 guys on this side, and they all have M16s in their hands. I mean, that's what it's like going on here. I mean, here's a man who's going to make sure I am protected, she's saying. And verse 9, Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin. He made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Solomon the king made himself a palanquin, which is a coach carried uh, by poles. Made it himself, handcrafted it just, just for their wedding day. And the daughters of Jerusalem decorated the inside with the flowers and all. And this is going to be the vehicle to transport her and Solomon to Jerusalem. I mean, he's doing it right. He's thought this out. He's thought this through and through. He's not some guy picking up his bride in an old beat-up work truck and driving off to the justice of the peace. He's, he's pursuing her again. Just showing her how special she is. He's doing it right. You know, some 40... And a half years ago, when I asked my wife to marry me, I, I told her that when the day comes when I ask you to marry me, I, I, you know, it's going to be a special day. It's going to be beautiful. I want to take you to the beach and, and take you out on the sand, or I'm going to take you into the mountains with the bright, fluffy clouds to marry you. I'm, I'm going to, you know, to a park. It's just going to be a beautiful day. So the day came when I decided I was going to ask you to marry me, and I, I said, Lise, do you want to go to the beach? And she says, Why? So you can ask me to marry me? No, okay, we don't need to go to the beach. She had no clue yet. Yeah, that was the reason. I thought, we can't go to the mountains now. We can't go to the park. So, so I ended up back on my little, uh, little house that I was renting, just a one-room house, and got her out of my car and put her down in the grass in the side yard there and proposed her right there. Now, if I had to do it all over again, you know, it would be so much better. But what do you expect at 19 years old? And I tell her it's partially her fault for guessing what I was going to do in the first place. Now, my daughters have done it right. I mean, Calvin proposed to Annie in Hawaii, hiking up a trail with Diamond Head in the background. Dan, you know, with Laura, they were at the top of the rock down by Pat's Branson outside this beautiful chapel, this beautiful sunset dinner they had. Just, just beautiful. Joey, who's like me, you know, just kind of down in our kitchen in our house. And Natalie, will you marry me? <laughs> Not so much how it happens. You know, it's just, just... Just the love and, and, you know, God bringing the people together and, and, uh, and, and Solomon, man, he's doing it right. He's got it all in his mind how he's going to do it. And, and notice her response. Verse 11. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. She said, check out my man. Eat your heart out, ladies. Guys, that is how you want your wife to feel. Now, what is interesting is, and we don't have any details here about the ceremony. There's, there's no vows. There's no songs that was sung at the wedding or music that was played. No father-daughter dance. God just skips that part. Why is that? Well, because, you know, marriage ceremonies can vary in style and flavor and, and length and focus. And God's basically saying, that's up to you. The ceremony, how you want to do all that, that's up to you. Here's what I see. People spend months and months and months and use a lot of money planning for, planning for a ceremony that's going to last 30 minutes at most and spend no time planning for the rest of their life together. 
They don't prepare for marriage God's way. Don't, don't get me wrong. Ceremony is special and important. It makes it legal. And you can do what you want with the ceremony. But when it comes to how you're going to live and love as a husband and wife, God has something to say about that in His Word, and it's worth so much more than dances and, and wedding dresses. God is more interested in couples learning to love each other the right way for years to come than what kind of cake you're going to eat at the reception. All right, we're going to stop there tonight. Next week's study is rated PG-13, titled The...